Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. This episode is going to look at a group of stories about little-known individuals from early Christian history, and it relates to the concept of monasticism. Now, you might have an image of monks from Christian history in your mind from movies, television shows, and so on, in these very, very cold stone monasteries huddled over books that they are copying diligently. And this is true. You know, this image is not without foundation because monks in the Middle Ages did actually copy manuscripts. Also doing things like singing Gregorian chants. This is all accurate, but the beginnings of monasticism in Christian history are much more strange than that. And it actually connects much more directly to another religious concept that is seen in different religious traditions. And this is the idea of people deciding voluntarily to just drop out of society, to cut ties with other human beings as much as they can. And they adopt a lifestyle not only of isolation or relative isolation from other people, but a very strict disciplined lifestyle where they don't eat much food, really just the bare minimum of food necessary to stay alive is what they're going to consume. They deprive themselves of all kinds of pleasures and luxuries of life. And this approach is called asceticism. Probably the earliest accounts of asceticism actually come from India, where we have men and women in the Hindu religious tradition who would leave their towns and villages, live really without clothing or just a minimum of clothing and spend all their waking hours in prayer, meditation, contemplation. And the idea is to shed any kind of worldly distractions and focus upon a more transcendent idea of divinity. Now, this is seen all around the world, and it is seen in early Christian tradition, too. Christianity began in the eastern side of the Roman Empire, and it was in Egypt in the middle of the 3rd century AD or 200s AD that we have the first account of a Christian ascetic, also monastic. This comes from the word for being by yourself in Greek. And this was Antonius, or Antony, Saint Anthony, as he's referred to. Now, there's actually more than one Saint Anthony in Christian tradition. But this Antony, or Antonius, lived in Egypt, and he was from a fairly well-off family. And when he was a young man, he heard a sermon telling him, give away everything you own, give it all to the poor, and follow me. And he decided to take that literally. Signed over his entire inheritance to relatives, shook hands with them, said goodbye to them. So he left all of his friends and his family, and he walked off into the Egyptian desert by himself, stating that God would provide. This is not an act that a lot of people today would probably consider to be sane. But not only did he survive in the desert, he survived a long time. The story is he lived to be over 100. And this is something that you see in a lot of these accounts that we're looking at today. These individuals do things that are really pretty dangerous physically. And yet they end up having long lifespans. So he subsisted on whatever food he was able to find out in the desert, which obviously isn't going to be much. He ate things like locusts and some desert plants. Legend has it that he experienced powerful visions, including visions where he was tempted by the devil to turn away from his path. But he persevered. He conquered these temptations. And eventually he became famous because there were people traveling through the desert who would encounter him. And they took stories of him back to civilization. And then there were some people that went looking for this guy because they thought, okay, this is a holy man. I need to talk to this person. So it's kind of ironic. He was trying to get away from people, and then people end up looking for him once his fame starts to spread. So he started a tradition in Egypt of people doing this. They go out into the desert. Another term for this is hermit. 
And so Christian monasticism is documented first in Egypt. Then it spreads over to Syria. And in Syria, you got a real different kind of cultural setting here. Now, when we talk about Syria in Roman times, we're not talking about the modern borders of the country in the Middle East. It's much bigger than the modern country of Syria. But there was a very specific set of religious traditions in Syria even before Christianity arrived. This brings us to the stories of the stars of today's episode, the so-called Stylite Saints. Stylite Saints lived on top of stone pillars. So a stylus is another term for a pillar. So they actually live atop these things. And there were quite a few of them. What we're looking at today are stories about the founder of the tradition, Simeon the Stylite, Saint Simeon the Stylite, and then somebody who carried on this tradition after meeting him, Daniel the Stylite. Now, Simeon was probably born somewhere around the year 390 AD, and he was born in a village in what's now northern Syria called Sisa. He was not from a rich family at all. They were shepherds, and this is what he did when he was young. Never really got an education. One day, he sort of wandered into a church and decided that he wanted to dedicate his life to the Christian religion. So he joined a local community of monks. By this point, starting in Egypt and then spreading to Syria and other places, there were these monasteries, these communities of either men or women who would adopt this lifestyle of strict discipline. Now, this was a place that most of us would find really intense already. The living arrangements involved the monks being in separate huts. They fasted throughout the day. They would not eat until late in the evening. So that's already something that's going to involve quite a bit of dedication and perseverance right there. But Simeon apparently started to kind of freak out the other monks there because his devotion was so intense that it made them look bad and almost frightened them. And the abbot, the monk who was in charge of the monastery, didn't really know what to do with Simeon. He liked Simeon, this young man who had joined the community, admired him in many ways, admired his dedication, but also really didn't know how to process it. Simeon ended up being asked to leave the monastery because he was too extreme. He decided to do something that's called mortification. This is where you put your body through something very, very painful and physically dangerous. Simeon took a rope, a very sort of rough rope of palm fibers, and he tied it around his torso very, very tightly. Now, he hid this from the abbot and the other monks. He kept it under his robe, wouldn't tell them, but he tied it so tightly that it started to cut its way into the skin and the flesh, and he ended up with an infected wound all the way around his body. Some of the other monks noticed a smell. They occasionally noticed blood trickling down his lower legs and his feet. They asked him about it. He wouldn't say anything about it. Then they noticed that when he got up from his bed in the morning, if they happened to look at his bed, there were actually maggots in the bed. So finally, the monks confronted him and the rope was discovered. So he's asked to find another place to engage in his monastic dedications. So he went to a nearby area called Telneshe. And he found an area where he set up some stones to make an enclosure and decided he was going to stay there out in the open air exposed to the elements, which is something that a few other monks in Syria are tested as having done. It wasn't just Simeon who was doing this. We have a whole collection of stories about monks of Syria. This account talks about a monk named Salamanes. And he put himself into a hut near a river and just sort of walled it up and 
sealed off the door. Now, you would probably look at it and say, well, he was trying to commit suicide. The thing is that there were people around who noticed it. So what they would do is actually make a little tunnel under the door so they could get some food to him. That's how he actually survived. And in all these cases, these individuals literally would have starved to death if they didn't have kind of a support network, you could say. Well, local bishop decided, hey, this is a holy man, Solomonis. I'm going to go ordain this guy as a priest. But Solomonis wouldn't do anything to open up the door for him. So they had to actually break down the door. The bishop went in and began to go through the whole ritual of ordaining this guy. Solomonis didn't even react to it. He just sat there completely silent through the whole thing. A little bit later, there was some men from his home village who decided they wanted to bring him back to their village because he was starting to become kind of famous. So Solomonis ended up getting kidnapped by these guys. They pulled him out of the hut. They took him to the other side of the river closer to his home village, and they built him a brand new hut just like the original one. Once again, he didn't say anything. He didn't react to it. He just sat there completely impassively. And so this is another side of this ideal that they're striving for, that you are so cut off from other people in the outside world that people could do that to you, and you literally wouldn't do anything about it. That same collection of stories also talks about a monk named Baradatis, who built a small kind of wooden box for himself to live in, and it was so small that he couldn't even really fit into it. He couldn't stand up straight once he squeezed into it. He couldn't really sit down comfortably. And he covered himself with a shawl that would expose only his mouth and his nose. So the point of this is that Simeon was not completely alone in these practices. It wasn't like he was the only person doing these things. So he's living inside this enclosure. The local people get to know who he is. And then there are stories that start to spread around that he is working miracles. He's healing the sick. He's casting demons out of people. So a lot of people came to this enclosure to try to visit him. And Simeon decided that he had to get away from the people a little bit. You know, there's just such a press of people coming in, bringing requests for help, that kind of thing. Not too far away from the enclosure, there were some old ruined pagan temples. And they had things like stone columns. So part of a column was actually brought there. People must have helped him to do this. And he set it up as the first pillar that he was going to live on. And apparently wasn't very high, this initial one. But he got on top of it and said he wasn't going to leave from that point. So he's already exposed to the elements being in the enclosure. He has no shade. He's completely exposed to the vagaries of the weather. But there he is. He's on top of the pillar. And he is supposed to be the first person to do this in the Christian monastic tradition. So he is the first stylite, Simeon stylite. As time went on, they added column drums to make it higher and higher, and then by the time it got to its greatest height, it was about 60 feet high by our system of measurement. He ended up living as a stylite for 37 years. So he is exposed to the great outdoors on top of this column. He would eat about once a week food that was brought to him, generally just lentils. He tried to sleep as little as he possibly could. He would maintain a regimen where, beginning at sunset, he would be completely focused on prayer and meditation. He would pray and meditate throughout the entire night and into the next morning. 
One of the biographers tried to count these bends, these prostrations that he was doing during his daily prayers. He would try to stand on the top of the pillar as long as possible. But he did these prostrations where he would be standing and he would bend really, really far, almost like touching your toes. His forehead would come very close to actually touching his legs. And he would do it over and over and over again. The biographer said he tried to count the number of prostrations got up to 1,244 of them in a row, and then got distracted and lost count and decided to give up. These devotions would continue through the morning and into the afternoon. And then at 3 p.m., he would hear requests from people. And it wasn't just healing, although there's many stories of healing, but he also is said to have become kind of a community leader. People would go to him to get certain disputes resolved. There were people that came to him saying that they were being unfairly taxed by local officials. And Simeon's fame started to spread so much that he actually shamed people into doing the right thing. And in a few cases, when people completely refused to do the right thing, or if they went so far as to mock Simeon, there are stories that these people were suddenly struck with paralysis or severe illness. And sometimes they died from them. Sometimes they were forgiven if they came to see Simeon. He would only allow men into the enclosure near the pillar to speak to him. And you could climb a ladder to speak to him directly. The weirdest story related to this, he is said to have run away from home. His parents had no idea where he was. His father had passed away by this point. But his mother discovered, after many years, where he was, what he was doing. She came to see him, and he refused to meet with her. He sent messages back and forth to one of his disciples saying, we're going to meet in the next life, but I cannot be distracted from what I'm doing now by meeting with you and talking with you. She then died right outside the entrance of the enclosure. Her body was then brought in to where he could see it. He then wept, but he said that you're in a better place now. Her face actually turned into a smile, even though she was already dead, and he had her buried at the base of the pillar. He received visits from Imperial Roman officials, members of the Imperial family up in Constantinople. But back in the old Eternal City of Rome, there were images of Simeon Stylite on the pillar. They were actually sold to pilgrims. And he received visitors from as far away as what is now Spain and France. Simeon finally died in the year 459 AD at the age of 70. At the time of his death, There was a fear that his body would literally be torn to pieces. People would want pieces of him because he was seen as such a holy man. This is the concept of saints' relics, which got into really morbid territory with body parts, bones, remains. So the local governor in the closest Roman city to Telneshe, which was Antioch, today that's a town called Antakya in southern Turkey, sent soldiers and clergy to retrieve the body. It was taken down from the pillar. It was conveyed in a funeral procession all the way to Antioch, where he was buried in one of the churches there. One last major miracle is said to have happened during that procession. There was a man who had been possessed by a demon and had lived in a local cemetery by himself for many years. He had completely lost the power of speech during this time. As the procession was moving past, this man rushed out of the cemetery, ran over to the procession, and had found his voice again calling on Simeon for aid, and he was cured of his affliction. The area where Simeon had lived on the pillar had a major church built around it, and it remained an important site of pilgrimage all the way up into close to modern times. The church is in ruins in that part of Syria today, but the base of the pillar is still there. The column is gone because people just chipped away pieces over the centuries to take home with them.
So this brings us to Daniel the Stylite, the other important Stylite saint that we're looking at today. Daniel did actually meet Simeon, according to his own biography, and was inspired to copy his example. Daniel was from a village called Maratha, near a town in what is now southeastern Turkey called Samosata. He also adopted the monastic lifestyle at a very early time in his life. He was about 12 years old. And he took a journey with the abbot of his monastery, and they visited Simeon at his pillar. What's funny about this is that some of his fellow monks, older monks, would actually poke fun at Simeon. You have to realize that not everybody thought that Simeon was great. There were some people, including other monks, who didn't understand what he was doing. They just thought that this was some kind of weird egotistical thing. So they'd been bad-mouthing the guy before they showed up. Now, when they got there, it was so obvious that Simeon was so dedicated to his lifestyle that they were pretty shamed by that. And they were afraid to actually climb the ladder to speak to Simeon and get blessed by him. But Daniel, who had not done any bad-mouthing at all, did actually do this. Sometime later, Daniel had a vision, a vision of an old man who told him he should go to Constantinople and that he should live the life of a stylite once he got there. So Daniel journeyed up to Constantinople at a place very close by called Anaplus. This is where he decided to put down roots, so to speak. He received Simeon's one garment, because we're all those years on top of the pillar. It was a leather tunic. And Simeon, according to the story, had asked that this be given to Daniel. It's like he's designating Daniel as his successor. You're probably thinking, okay, this is a leather tunic that somebody has worn and never washed for 37 years. Probably pretty disgusting, something you wouldn't think that Daniel would want to wear. But according to the biography of Simeon, at his death, and his body really was in bad shape by this point, he had gotten gangrene in one of his feet that had led to a horrible stench at one point. But once he died, everything around him smelled almost like perfume. It was what was called the odor of sanctity. So this leather tunic didn't smell bad, according to what it's described here. It actually had a good smell. So Daniel accepted the leather tunic. So Daniel's got disciples too at this point, including an old man named Sergius, who had been one of Simeon's disciples. Sergius is the one who brought him the tunic. Problem is that the land that they've chosen actually does belong to a wealthy man in the imperial court named Galanius. And when he heard about Daniel, that Daniel was planning to live this way there, he said, he never asked me for permission to live on my property. So he sent some of his servants or henchmen, however you want to put it, to go send Daniel packing. But when they arrived, they were hit by a fiercely cold wind and a terrible hailstorm. The hailstorm chased them away. It damaged some of Galinius's vineyards, which were very close by. But Daniel himself was not touched. This brought Daniel to the attention not only of a lot of people in Constantinople, but also the emperor himself. The emperor at this time was named Leo. So Leo goes to visit Daniel. He also sends messages back and forth. Now, just like Simeon, Daniel had his detractors. Some men in the imperial court decided that they wanted to discredit Daniel completely. So they hired a prostitute named Baziani to seduce Daniel, and they offered to pay her a large sum of gold if she was successful. She went to where Daniel was. She was not successful in persuading him to allow her to come near him, climb a ladder up to the pillar. He recognized her as someone who was there in a capacity of being up to no good. So she's not successful, but she's greedy. She wants the money. So she comes back to Constantinople and spreads the false rumor that she had, in fact, seduced the great Daniel the Stylite. 
So the courtiers pay her the money that they promised her. And now everybody's talking about this through the capital city. Oh, Daniel is not who we thought he was. He's not the holy man that he's cracked up to be. But then Baziani was somehow possessed or some spirit overtook her. And she began to rave in the streets that she had lied. And she named every single man who was in on the plot to ruin the reputation of Daniel. So their reputations were ruined instead. Now, Daniel's pillar wasn't too well built at first. A storm did strike and it almost toppled with Daniel on top of it. So the Emperor Leo persuaded him to build a sort of double column that was connected together by iron bars and a wooden plank. That winter, however, a very violent snowstorm struck the area. Daniel's leather tunic, the one that had belonged to Simeon before, was torn away in the wind, so he was completely naked and exposed to the elements and was covered in frost and snow by the next morning. His disciples thought that he had frozen to death. They were terrified. They brought sponges and warm water up to the top of the column, and they began to rub his skin, and they broke away the encrusted snow and ice. And although at first Daniel had shown literally no signs of life in his eyes or his face, wasn't even breathing, it seemed at first, he regained consciousness. And Daniel actually complained. He said, I was having a very pleasant dream that I was lying on couches covered by warm blankets. Why did you pull me away from that dream? Being a bit flabbergasted, they explained to him, we thought you were dead. This really underscores just how hazardous this life of a stylite could be. There is an account of a stylite from a few centuries later that was struck by lightning and killed while he was on top of his pillar. Makes sense if you're up higher than anything else. Daniel was living on top of a pillar for a span of time almost about the same as Simeon's, all the way up until his own death in 493. But on one occasion, Daniel is said to have come down from his pillar and gone into the capital city because there was something so important, a crisis that needed to be solved with his assistance. This was when an emperor, a righteous emperor, according to the account named Zeno, Leo has died by this point. Zeno was driven out of the capital in exile by a man who had usurped the throne from him. This was a general in the Eastern Roman or Byzantine army named Basiliscus. And Basiliscus followed a particular religious concept from a group called the Monophysites. And without getting too deeply into it, it had a focus upon the nature of Jesus, a divine nature and a human nature, and what was more important. The Monophysites were out of step with what several church councils in recent years had decided. So this made them heretics followers of what church leaders had labeled as false beliefs. So because the emperor was now a heretic, this was a crisis that was seen as threatening the very foundations of Christianity, and Daniel had to do something to stop it. So in a vision, he was told to descend from his pillar. So his disciples did this, and this was not easy. This guy had not walked anywhere in many, many years. And he had tried to do the same kinds of things as Simeon, where he would stand as long as possible and, and try not to sleep very much. So his feet actually had exposed areas of bone, and he needed help walking once he was down on terra firma. So Daniel was taken into the capital. A huge throng of people showed up to greet him. And he continued to work miracles, both good and bad. One soldier was looking out of a window as the procession carrying Daniel was passing through, and he started to make fun of Daniel. Instantly, some force pulled him out of the window, and he was thrown to the street to his death. Popular opinion is turning against Basiliscus, unless he can get Daniel to change his mind about him. 
So Basiliscus meets with Daniel in front of a huge group of people. The emperor literally laid face down on the ground, prostrated himself, and begged for Daniel's forgiveness. But Daniel would not give it. He said, unless you turn away from your false belief, there's no way that you can be. It was not long after this that Zeno returned from exile, was able to do a coup d'etat, seize control of the empire again. Basiliscus was abandoned by almost all of his supporters, and he hid in a tower in his palace. He agreed to surrender, but he made Zeno promise that he would not spill the blood of Basiliscus. It's really important to word things the right way, though, because Zeno did live up to that promise. He simply put Basiliscus inside a dry well, a cistern, to die. Gave him no food and no water. Basiliscus had only been ruler in Constantinople for about a year. It just so happens this coincided with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The last emperor over in Italy, Romulus Augustulus, who was just a teenager at the time, really, was removed from power by a barbarian general named Odoacer. And this is the so-called fall of the Roman Empire. But it was really just the western half of the Roman Empire that came to an end. And the reason why nobody on the eastern side did much about it was because of this dispute going on between Zeno and Basiliscus. Sometime after this, Daniel died and was buried not far from his pillar. So these are the two most famous stylite saints. Other people continued this practice all the way up into modern times. Believe it or not, there is a monk in the country of Georgia along the Black Sea that is living a life similar to this. He's living in an old monastery on top of a very sheer rock formation. He does come down into the local village, but beyond this, he is actually continuing the stylite idea. So that's something you have to keep in mind. As crazy as these stories sound, a lifestyle that would probably seem to us to be nearly suicidal. A lot of these individuals are still considered saints today in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So it really all depends upon your perspective. Thanks to everyone for listening today. The musical credits are Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and The Morning Song performed by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. Keep an eye out for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.